This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. We live in an amazing city, Washington, D.C. D.C. is rich with history. D.C. was a planned city designed to serve our nation's capital. No city can function without clean drinking water. The Washington Aqueduct is the wholesale provider for the District of Columbia and a portion of Northern Virginia, including Arlington County, the city of Falls Church, and nearby Fairfax County. The Washington Aqueduct is operated by the U.S. Corps of Army of Engineers, and the aqueduct processes drinking water for the district, Arlington County, and the nearby portion service area of Fairfax County. Tom, first, uh, that's so much. That's just such a mouthful. I had a hard time with that. First, Tom, thank you for joining us today on Leaders and Legend. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Water, as you say, is vital, and we're very excited to be able to help the public understand what we do. It's an important mission. We do it well, do it with very capable people. Our our overall motto of our organization is safe, reliable, and cost-effective, and we work on that every day. Well, thank you. So tell us, what is the mission of the Washington Aqueduct? We talked a little bit about being a wholesaler, but can you provide a little bit more detail? Absolutely. Uh, It really goes back in history. Uh, We go back to 1853, uh, and the District of Columbia uh, was, uh, was a federal city. The Corps of Engineers was the city engineer, in effect, and the Congress realized that they needed to have a water source of pressurized water that was able to fight fires and have cleaner drinking water uh, into homes and establishments. And it was that concept that got this into being. Montgomery Meigs, a fabulously talented engineer uh, in those days, uh, was given the mission. They searched and went to Great Falls, and Great Falls is about 10 miles north on the Potomac River. They realized there was an elevation difference of about of sufficient um, sufficient elevation difference that they would get about a 60-foot fountain of water at the Capitol building. That's a lot of pressure. And so by building the aqueduct, the conduit, eight, uh, nine-foot uh, diameter conduit from Great Falls down to what we now call the Dale Carlier Reservoir by Sibley Hospital, and then continuing that down to what we call the Georgetown Reservoir, which is uh, the large basins where that castle structure is along the river, uh, that was the, the basis of the system. Uh, there were no pumps. There was no machinery other than gates. And then the water went into a series of pipes, got into the, the city, to the Navy Yard, to the Capitol building. And that was the, the emphasis, getting water to the people that was relatively clean compared to what had been in the river uh, and was under pressure. Over the years, further treatment, further pressurization, expansion of the system. And it's a job that keeps going on and on, even though the population is not growing and our, the consumption of water is shrinking, what we are focused on now is the safety and the reliability of the water that we send to them, and we do a great job in conjunction with our our wholesale partners and and, uh, the customers in D.C., Arlington, and Fairfax Water. So let's go back to that history a little bit. Um, Montgomery Riggs, he is an amazing man. I mean, he designed um, uh, so many things in the Washington, D.C. area to include the Cabin John Bridge, but this particular water system, you know, think about it, that was designed a long time ago, and we're still using it today. Yes, there's been some improvements, but it's it's basically very simple. It's it's really uh you know based on on um, 
pressure and and actually uh, gravity, right? I mean, exactly. The water treatment at its essence is very simple. You need to take the the particles out of the water, pass them through filters to get even more particles out, and now we add disinfectant. So it's sedimentation, uh, filtration, and disinfection. When MIGS built it, it was only the sedimentation. The filtration and disinfection came later. Uh, but the, as we get better and better now, the instruments are more precise. The, the regulations are more strict to encourage, uh, well, not encourage, but to promote the public health. So uh, we have continued to evolve. But the original legacy of having a gravity-based system saves hundreds of thousands of dollars in pumping costs every year. And the reliability in an ice storm or an electrical storm where the power lines may go down or the power may may be shut off, we can still bring water and pass it through the treatment plants and get along with other uh, sources of power, even in a very strict emergency. Yeah, simple is good. So tell us about your role at the Washington Aqueduct. Well, I'm the general manager, and that simply means that I'm responsible for getting everybody else what they need to do to get their job done. And we're an organization uh, of about 140 people. We're, we're ramping up a little bit technically with some other skills, and we, about 170 would be our tar- target goal. The, the most important group are the, the water uh, treatment operators. We have groups at the McMillan Water Treatment Plant by Howard University and Children's Hospital, and we have another group at the Dale Carlia Treatment Plant by um, Sibley Hospital. Uh, they run the chemical addition to the water, the pumping regimen. Um, they work three shifts a day, every day, um, no stopping. Um, and then supporting them, we have a maintenance crew of about 40 people, electricians, plumbers, pipe fitters, um, control and instrument people uh, who do a wonderful job in keeping the equipment running, supported by a wonderful engineering staff uh, and people who understand the water treatment, uh, water processes, and then just physical plant um, um, sustainment. And then, of course, we've got the standard administrative functions um, of finance, and, and IT is very important to us, both on the business side. Also, though, we have a very uh, sophisticated what we call SCADA, or industrial control system, uh, to make sure that the water treatment processes are operating optimally. But this is never done remotely or it's never done uh, without human oversight. The operators are always on duty. You're listening to Leaders and Legend on Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. And today our guest is Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. Tom, how many people get their water from the Washington Aqueduct? Is it, it's like over 5 million, right? Well, the aqueduct uh, supplies about a million. Now, the, the surrounding water utilities, Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission, that serves Montgomery County and Prince George's County, and then on the uh, western side of the Potomac River, we have Fairfax Water, and Fairfax serves... Uh, all of Fairfax County, uh, partly with our water, partly with water they produce, and then out to the west. Uh, and aggregate, the, that's maybe three and a half for four million people. Um, so the, the greater metropolitan Washington area, there are two interesting things about that. Um, three water utilities, six water treatment plants. Uh, even though we don't share water, we work very closely together to make sure that we understand the conditions of the river and that we're, our pumping regimens, we're, we're meeting our requirements and and that there's no surprises. Um, but we also all share the Potomac River to one extent or another. And so the Potomac River and the condition of the Potomac River in terms of drought protection, in terms of just uh, its purity and, and how we keep it clean and, and viable for us is, is extremely important. We've done a lot of things ourselves and with others to ensure that continues to happen. So let's take a back up. There's, it sounds kind of complex with all those different organizations. So um, 
How does the Washington Aqueduct conduct business, and where are the lines of responsibility from the local water authorities? Because in, in essence, you're a wholesaler to some of them, and in other ways, well, you're a- Well, we're a wholesaler. And, and what that means is we operate two water treatment plants, and we produce water that goes into the distribution system. In other words, the, the, the pipes, the big pipes, the little pipes that get into the houses and businesses. Um, all of the District of Columbia is a customer. And so the District of Columbia Water and Sewer Authority, and they do business as D.C. Water, fine organization, they are out in the field um, maintaining that network of, of water pipes. They do the billing. Of course, the water and sewer billing is done together. So we take care of getting enough water into the, the pipes. Now, every day they get as much as they need. And what they need is what is being consumed. And so on a given day, the District of Columbia takes about 100 million gallons from us. In the summertime, that goes up. In the wintertime, it goes down because water use is seasonal. Then we provide water to, to Arlington County, Virginia. Uh, they take about um, 15% of the water. And Fairfax Water uh, takes 10% of our water. So 25% of the water goes to uh, Virginia and 75% to uh, the District of Columbia. And all of that water uh, comes from one of our two treatment plants. And when we were always in communication with their distribution system managers, we, we watched very carefully the reservoir levels because there are really two critical periods, the early morning rush hour and the evening rush hour. And this isn't the traffic. Now, why rush hour? I well, mean, because people, if you look at how much water is used over a 24-hour period, there's more water morning used. Morning showers and evening Morning showers and then evening dinner preparation. And so if you look at that, that means you must have your reservoirs filled uh, by 4 o'clock in the morning overnight so there's extra water available for that. And then in the evening, you pump them up throughout the day to be ready for the evening. And you do that to minimize costs so that you don't have to continually be pumping into the distribution system. So these systems have evolved over time with capacities and known um, what the service area needs, but they're also very flexible for the future. We have a great deal of unused capacity that was built at a time when we were producing more water. But people are being more conservative with their water use and the low-flow fixtures, just general practices, less lawn area to be watered. The overall consumption is going down. Um, and so we have plenty of capacity as new residents come and new buildings are built So in, in all of our service areas. So we have plenty of water capacity in our treatment plants. The next question is, is there enough water in the river? Uh, so before we get to that, I want to talk about water quality. We definitely have some some questions around that. But um, I know the water quality is tested um, and that the water provided by the Washington Aqueduct is excellent. It meets all EPA, U.S. EPA standards and requirements. First, what does that mean? And how does the water that we get here from the Washington Aqueduct compare to other parts of the country? How does it stack up? Okay. Very, very well. Everyone should drink the water with great confidence. Um, we, in the treatment process, EPA safe drinking water regulations require standards of removing particles, disinfecting to, so that to remove the bacteria capability, looking for chemical compositions, the whole series of rules. There are hundreds and hundreds of tests, well, thousands of tests we do, looking for about 100 and so contaminants, some of them daily, some of them less frequently, to make sure we know with a profile of the water coming to us in the river, and therefore we know that the treatment plant is working. Once the water gets out in the distribution system, 
Then the regulations require the distribution system operator to go out and take samples throughout the distribution system that's a representative of where the water is, how long it's been in the pipes, the elevations, and all those things. And then those samples are collected and they're tested for bacteriological purity, and they're also tested for certain chemicals, things like halocytic acids, trihalomethanes, which are all looked at by EPA across the board to, to protect the public health. Uh, and all of those tests throughout the, the service area are, are, are very, very good. And we've demonstrated on occasion when there was some issue with the water because there was a pumping problem or a water main break or something, the public is advised by the utilities, the, the retail utilities, if they need to take any special precautions. Our responsibility is to produce the water safely and to let the public know that it is safe and we do that through the testing. There are reports that are published, but the most important thing we do is we will always, through our retail customers, make a notification if there's anything that the public should be concerned about. And we'll use mediums like Federal News Radio, WTOP, to get that word out to make sure people know. So um, we are completely open, uh, transparent, in, in the sense of making sure people know what we're doing. If we make a mistake, we will tell people, uh, but we've got very, very... Uh, layered uh, ways to look at the, the water through a, uh, a flow system where we're analyzing the water from the time it comes into the plant and as it goes through the plant so that if the process were to sort of deviate, we could correct that. Or if, if we had to, we would just stop that amount, that water and bypass it and, and bring other water through. So we have a very good idea of what is happening to the water at all times. And there's nothing else we do except getting the water to the public safely. That's all we do. I'm speaking with Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. Coming up, we'll continue to discuss the water quality we drink in the D.C. area. You're listening to Leaders in Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. Tom, I know the aqueduct is constantly trying to improve our water quality. We were just talking about that. A recent study has begun by the Washington Aqueduct about future treatments, about continuing to improve our process as we get new challenges. Is this study to stay ahead, or are there some questions about the water that are beginning to appear? We do a great job uh, on behalf of the public and behalf of our customers, uh, but the water that we treat comes from the Potomac River. And as science detects uh, the danger of certain chemicals that come into the river, we all, the best thing any of us can do, anybody listening out there, the best thing to do is do everything you can not to pollute the drinking water through the river. See, if, it, if you don't put the stuff in the river, then we don't have to take it out. So pharmaceuticals, uh, whether they're personal use products or whether they're they're used uh, in, in agriculture, pesticides, just general discharges of things and, and runoff. Everything we can do as a society to keep the river as, as pure as it can be, that makes our job a little bit easier. It also makes it less expensive. But there are some emerging contaminants and things that we, we need to look at. And, and the added addition of ozone to the treatment process and ultraviolet disinfection, these are things we've considered. We will move forward with those slowly. Uh, it's a matter of both affordability and timing. Um, and we are, we are governed by a wholesale customer board, and the, the role of that board is, is to promote Washington Aqueduct's ability to produce uh, safe drinking water and also to balance that with other needs we have for the resiliency of the operation. 
So there's our current treatment is excellent. Uh, there are things we are looking at that we will uh, over time uh, employ to to do things that are important, not health related, but make the water taste a little better. Sometimes you get a little bit of an algae taste or a little bit of low tide smell. It's because the algae in the river. There are things we do to add carbon. There are some other processes we can do to absorb those odors. These are the kind of things we look at in addition to the fundamental um, uh, looking at ways to defeat the pathogens that might be coming to us in the water. You brought up water levels a little bit ago, and and that probably changes your, your challenge a little bit, whether it be some of the torrential rains we have recently had in the Washington, D.C. area, or whether it be a golf course sitting right off the Potomac and drawing water, um, or whether it be construction work that, you know, isn't filtering the water and, and, and uh, removing a lot of the trees. Um, how do you, you know, deal with all these constant changes, and, and how does water quantity affect the way that you approach uh, cleaning our water. In 1960, there was a drought. And in the 60s, I think it was 1966, if you had gone to Little Falls Dam on the Potomac, which is our secondary import, uh, intake, no water was flowing over the dam. Uh, and that was because it was, it was maybe the second big, uh, most severe drought on record. So in reaction to that, the Army Corps of Engineers and WSSC and Maryland all got together and dams were built on the Potomac. The Jennings Randolph Reservoir uh, up at, in what, between West Virginia and Virginia uh, was constructed as additional water supply. The Little Seneca Reservoir, there's another reservoir called Savage. So there's a reservoir system out there that we manage uh, that allows us to have additional water put into the, into the Potomac. So we look for the, the next 20 to 30 years out uh, and by up until about 2040, the current projections are that we can manage the amount of water in the river. We also worry about contamination of the river. Uh, and we have plans to boom our intakes and alter our, 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 our structures to uh, avoid if someone had an oil spill coming down the river. So the quantity of water in the river has been, for the, the near term, uh, well managed through uh, through reservoir releases and, and very careful regional planning. And then the quality is something that we also look at. We have networks, communications that identify where a spill may have occurred, and then the rapid response of EPA and the state authorities to, to clean up that spill so that it doesn't affect the water supply. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. And our guest today is Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. Uh, Tom, I was looking, going back to that study, and there was a reference to uh, looking into endocrine disruptors. Um, what are the biggest concerns coming down the pike, and what is that? Well, it's, it, we all have what we call an endocrine system. So those endocrine disruptors are chemicals that get into your body, and they may uh, affect your endocrine glands, which are essential for health. Mm -hmm. uh, so having to remove those um, iodine and others uh, from the water is very important. EPA has um, does research and they look to set maximum contaminant levels for um, all sorts of chemicals, chemicals which may be carcinogens and also the endocrine disruptors. And so our treatment processes are geared to look at that range of, of potential um, harmful chemical and look for processes to remove it. Right now, all of the water meets all of the standards and for the foreseeable future, it meets those standards. But we, we realize that as we look forward uh, as a combination of good source water protection, keeping stuff out of the river, but evolving regulations, 
we need to be ready to implement uh, treatment to overcome those uh, future regula- regulations. You know, I read an article about microplastics and how the average person consumes a credit card worth of plastic per week. How bad is that in our area, in our water system? Well, microplastics are either tiny little beads that were intentionally created, like in the cosmetic industry, or soaps, uh, facial uh, scrubs, toothpaste, uh, to give a little bit of a, of a grit uh, for cleaning. And then when those are consumed and they go back into the wastewater system, they are available to be drawn in at the next water treatment plant. Uh, other kinds of plastics are just plastics which were disposed of and get ground up in the course of going through the rivers. Um, there's a lot of research going on right now. Uh, we do not have the ability as a water treatment plant to remove these particles, which are very, very, very tiny. Mm-hmm. In some cases, even nanoparticles. Um, the actual health effects of taking these plastics, which are not exactly inert because they do have certain chemical compositions themselves, which may have some effect, that's a study ongoing. So the, the, here again, the best thing to do is to work as a collaborative community and, and not use these substances that uh, can then be put into the rivers. Now, there are some regulatory initiatives to cease the production of these, um, and therefore, uh, as a nation, we would we would sort of shift the way we produce that kind of a, of a substance to use something other than these little plastic particles. So if you're a listener out there and you'd like to, to help uh, reduce the use of these, can you give us some examples? Well, I think the, 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 there's not much you can do if you're using a toothpaste that has these little nanoparticles because when you finish using it and, and put it down the drain, it will go to the river. Um, but um, I think that we will see the the adoption of rules that what seems like a real good idea, these little inert particles, real tiny, uh, will ha- are now we've determined that there are some secondary effects which we perhaps not want to have. And so I th- would think those would be phased out over time. I'm speaking with Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. Coming up, we'll talk about the security of our water in the D.C. area. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. Tom, before we jump to the security of our water, let's talk about the treatment process our water goes through before you provide it to our local water authorities. Tell us about the raw or untreated water, what it contains, and how you they remove the you know things that are bad for us and produce drinking water. Certainly. Well, all of our water comes from the, from the Potomac River. And if any of you have had a chance to look at the Potomac, you'll notice that after a big rainstorm, it's kind of brown. And after a really big rainstorm, there's a lot of branches and things in the water that come down. Uh, and then it can settle down and be quite clear. Of course, we're most interested when the river is what we call turbid. It's got a lot of dirt and particles in it. So the first thing we do when we take the water in from our, our intakes along the Potomac River we have screens, bars and screening systems to keep the big stuff out, and that just stays in the river. But the water that comes down to the treatment plants, our reservoir, our, what we call our receiving reservoir, will actually turn brown. And then we add a coagulant. We use aluminum sulfate. And aluminum sulfate simply uh, goes into the water at a certain specified uh, concentration based on the tests we do in, in our little laboratory that the operators run. Uh, and we get the right optimal concentration. And this coagulant electri- electrically 
is uh, oppositely charged from the dirt particles. And so the coagulant meets a dirt particle, opposites attract, and they come together slowly and they fall to the bottom. And so we literally decant clean water off the top of our sedimentation basins and the dirt particles that have been collected electrically, electrostatically with the uh, alum settle to the bottom. And then at the time this is going on, we have collectors that go along the bottom and they are sucking those particles out. So we're cleaning the basins at the same time we're using them. These are basins that are about 8 million gallons of water flowing through them. That gets a lot of it out. If you think of the, the dirt particle as a raft, attached to that raft could be a parasite, a bacteria, a virus. So if you can get that out, it's gone. But the there will be small little particles that go through. So then we go through filters. And we use what we call dual media filters. About 18 inches of anthracite, which is coal. And we use then about 18 inches of sand. And they're different size spaces. And the water comes down through the coal. The bigger particles get hung up in the, uh, in the little crevices that are there. The water continues down. The smaller particles get hung up on the sand. And that runs for about 120 hours until we have to take it out and, and backwash it like you would a swimming pool feature, filter. And the water that comes out of those filters is extraordinarily clean from the standpoint of particles. However, there will still be bacteria and viruses in it because they are much smaller than the filter size. So then we go to the last phase of the process, sedimentation, filtration, and then disinfection, where we use a chlorine-based product. We use sodium hypochlorite, uh, which is bleach, a uh, concentrated form of bleach. And that kills oxidation reaction, kills the bacteria uh, and viruses, and then the water is, is th these are all, the calculation of how long this takes is all done by EPA tables where the water and the disinfection uh, disinfectant have to be in contact for a certain period of time. We have baffles through our underground chambers, and then the water that leaves the chamber to go out into the distribution system, those bacteria have been killed. So we've gotten rid of the particles, we've gotten rid of the, the little uh, you know, protozoans and pathogens. We got rid of the, the bacteria and the viruses. And now that water is out in the distribution system under pressure, uh, followed along by all that water coming behind it that's gone through the same process so that it remains safe to drink. So a lot of our listeners out there, to include myself, have well water. It sounds like a quite elaborate system you have going on there. Should we be concerned uh, taking raw water into our homes? And, and how would you have your well water tested? Well, you should absolutely be concerned about drinking raw water. I would never, I would never do it. Don't go to the river and drink the water because there are bacteria and viruses, E. coli, in the river because that's they would get there from the runoff. Our job has been to go through a multiple barrier approach to get them out. So at your well, you've got a, a different kind of a source. You're pulling up from the groundwater, so the ground itself has acted as a natural filter. But you really need to have your well water tested and see what you've got so that you can set up a system to remove bacteria, which would be a coronation process. But you also might have nitrates. In some areas, you have high levels of fluoride, naturally occurring fluoride. You might also have radon. So or iron. <laughs> or iron, and so they would discolor things. So if you once you get this set up, have it professionally installed, the deeper the better, um, the, um, then you, you manage it according to your plan and make sure that you keep adding the chemicals to your to your coronation system, and a well-managed, a properly managed well uh, can be very, very safe. But the danger of a well is if it's not protected at the hole and, and uh, products get down, if you had animal waste or something get down inside your well, then that's going to come right back up as harmful bacteria. So it's up to the homeowner or whoever is operating the well to make sure it's tested, run according to the, the plan, and then maintained well. 
You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Our guest today is Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. Uh, Tom, let's talk about the security of our water here in D.C. area. It seems like a ripe target uh, for someone to cause harm to a community. How do you keep security in focus on our water supply? Well, as I, as we know, or I, I, I would say never drink the raw water. So our job at the water treatment plants is to take water that is unfit to drink, unhealthy to drink, and go through a series of processes to uh, remove harmful pathogens and disinfect it and make it and keep it safe while it's in your distribution system. So at the treatment plant, we have many, many monitors that are looking at all stages of the process. We're looking at what we call chlorine residual. When we add chlorine uh, to, um, to disinfect the water, we know how that, the concentration should decay. If it's decaying at a faster rate, we know there's something that is placing the demand on the chlorine. It may be nothing. It may be something important. So through our monitoring process, that's why the people are there. The equipment's there to help them. They're looking to see if they can detect anything that is not going according to the rules. We have target um, levels of, of, of purification at each, at each location. All of the water that leaves the water treatment plant as what we call finished water, potable water, drinking water, all of that water from that point on is underground. It's either in the transmission main going directly to your home or it goes to an underground storage reservoir uh, for further um, sending it further along to your home later. Uh, we use those reservoirs. They're just like water tanks uh, you would see out in the countryside. Uh, we just don't have them here in the city just for a low profile. Uh, and then our, our partners, our retail partners, the D.C. Water and Sewer Authority and the others, they manage the distribution system. They're taking tests. We're all looking at the elevations of the reservoirs. So it's a, it's a very strictly controlled process that we monitor. If we don't see a result that is is what we expect, we will stop and investigate and fix it. Um, we have physical security, of course, trained operators, access to the control rooms, all of those things so that someone doesn't come in inadvertently or purposely interfere with, this, with the production of water. And then we're, we have processes in the distribution system to make sure that no one is tampering with the water in the distribution system. And it's tested constantly, and there's a lot of online monitoring. So the public should feel... Should, should be aware that we're doing a lot all the time and that um, if we ever had an inclination that something was wrong, we would tell them. Now, there's a lot of evolving threats that aren't necessarily terrorists, um, which thank you for doing all that, by the way. Uh, uh, but some of the evolving threats are, uh, you know, I read about in doing research on this interview. What about the Potomac Pipeline? I, I read about the dangers of fracking. Uh, which is the Potomac Pipeline, is basically a natural gas pipeline that's going to uh, go through at least uh, near the Potomac or, or by, the, by the Potomac. And, and it can eventually compromise our water supply. That's the big concern. Um, so, you know, can you tell us, because, I mean, surface and groundwaters can suffer long-term harm during construction of fracked pipelines. Uh, drilling can blow out toxic uh, chemicals. Um, does I know that you're not in charge of this, but as somebody who helps manage, uh, you know, our water system, is that something that our public should be concerned about and maybe get involved in, in discussions of, of this being put in our area? We all need to, to understand what the, what the engineering processes are and make sure we have good information upon which to base decisions. The advantage of the product, the, the natural gas, is it makes uh, – it lowers electrical rates for us. Sure and, that's, and that's important. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But we've got to be, what we're interested in, whenever we have an opportunity to comment on an environmental impact statement or some, some public document, we look into the, the on-site practices of the drilling operation and they have containment because they're using chemicals to, to make this happen. And we do not want those chemicals released into the Potomac River. We want to see good plans for their retention, shipping them off-site. Uh, a a well-operated uh, fracking site uh, can, can, can be done in a way that will not run off into the water. Now, once the pipeline carrying the gas, natural gas, or in, case, in other cases, we have other kind of pipelines. We have oil pipelines that are taking oil uh, up to the northeast across uh, the Potomac, commercial pipelines. We know where they are. We work with those pipeline operators. We know what their emergency plans are because if we get an oil spill out of a pipeline, that's going to become a difficult uh, event to overcome. But we've, we've practiced this. We're confident that we, we know each other through our exercises, and we've got good emergency response. And these, at least, these pipelines can be shut down very quickly. Uh, but nevertheless, um, it's a team effort. All of us need to be aware of what's out there, to act responsibly in the process of, of, of pumping uh, oil or creating um, fracking operations. So we are not opposed to them occurring. We will be careful in commenting to uh, allow people to consider our needs so that the, the needs of the, of the river and the needs of the drinking water utilities downstream are very carefully considered in any decision and then well managed after a decision has been made. Accidents happen, though, Tom. And and so tell me, let's say, you know, a disaster happens. How much backup supply does the do we have for our area if, if something happens oh. like that? We're, we're somewhat limited in the amount of, of supply. We have maybe 24, 36 hours. We've said this uh, before in the, in the last several years. Uh, and we're looking to increase our supply. We're looking for the opportunity to have an off-Potomac source of water that would be unaffected by an accident or some event out on the Potomac. And, and this could be of great value to our region. The utilities are looking at it, the states along with the utilities, and we, um, we've we got some active plans. Um, don't have any approvals, but what we're looking for is maybe a 14-day supply of, of water uh, in a reservoir that is not part of the Potomac River system. So that water could be taken out of that reservoir and put directly into the treatment plants, either at WSSC, Fairfax Water, or Washington Aqueduct, and we could just sit and stay, stay off the river while uh, other authorities are cleaning up the events in the river. So while we do depend on the river, we also realize that the rivers are vulnerable. Uh, accidents can happen. Other things can happen um, that uh, would, would put us at great risk. And we do never want to run out of water because so much depends on it. Um, the sanitary system depends on being able to have water to flush the toilets. We have to have water for the air conditioning systems, the big ones. Which, which allow computers, radio stations to stay on the, on, in the air. So these are, and, and all the commercial activities. So this is something that we take very seriously. We have teams formed uh, to look at this, and we're looking for the, the alternative that gets us the, the best result as, as quickly as possible at a cost that's affordable. So a, a disaster recovery plan sounds completely reasonable and, and something that's required for an area of the nights. If you have a listener out there that would like to learn more and get actively involved in helping support, uh, is, it, is, it, is there something that somebody can do or, or, or help to get involved? Well, of course, uh, the local utilities all have, have, have uh, board meetings and the public can go to those board meetings of the utilities. We don't have quite that same arrangement. But uh, to be involved with your local government, to, to, to go to your council member and uh, at the appropriate hearing, the, 
in the, in the Council of the District of Columbia, the Transportation and Environment uh, Committee that we report to uh, would be interested to take testimony from D.C. residents and in, in the surrounding communities. There are ways to let your public officials know that you care about this and you've you, you place this as a priority because it helps shape their decision planning, taking resources and allocating them. I'm speaking with Tom Jacobus, general manager of the Washington Aqueduct. Coming up, we'll talk about water barons of Wall Street and how this could change the way that you pay for your water in the future. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government in Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. Um, I read some articles in Global Research. Um, it was titled The New Water Barons of Wall Street, Megabanks Buying Up um, the World's Water. Uh, obviously, clean water is a scarcity, right? And less than 2% of the world population, I read, has access to really good clean water. Uh, it's, it seems to me to be a little bit of a disturbing trend in the water sector. This is accelerating worldwide. The new water barons, the Wall Street banks, and the elitist multi-millions are buying up uh, water all over the world at an unprecedented rate. Uh, familiar banks you might have heard of, like Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, UBS, are among uh, them consolidating the control over water. I think we're very lucky here in the Washington, D.C. area that the Washington Aqueduct is a public uh, organization run by the Army Corps of Engineers. So do you have an opinion of how this might affect the nation and how we get our water, cost of water, are there issues associated? Or is this a really good thing because it helps with funding to help improve the resources? Do you have an opinion I, on this? I think I'd like to answer that question from a local perspective, I, I would start by saying that certainly water is a scarce resource. There's, there's a finite amount of, of drinking water available on the surface or under the ground. And with all the needs of agriculture and, and, and industry and all, um, certainly water is a resource. And if you had access to it and could sell it, that could be a profitable resource. Uh, and I think that institutions and government will, will work that out. Uh, for our perspective here in, in the District of Columbia, our water supply is the Potomac River, and that is a natural flowing water to which we have the ability to draw from it. The uh, Maryland Department of Environment uh, and uh, Virginia Department of Environmental Quality look at withdrawal permits from the river. So we, we manage the amount of water being withdrawn from the river through those state agencies. We believe that this municipal uh, operation uh, is, is a very sound model. The Corps of Engineers is a federal activity, and we were responsible as in 1853, it started this project. But we operate as a wholesale supplier to as a, the District of Columbia, Arlington, and Fairfax Water. Each of those are some kind, you know, either a public entity or a, a natural governmental entity like Arlington County. We have a, a business arrangements with them, which they, they fund all of our operations. And we provide them the service and the quality that they need. We believe that it's that model, that public model, works well rather than a private water company coming in, which is a for-profit. And so there's nothing at all wrong with a for-profit water company. There, there are many of them in the United States and around the world. They do great work. But their business model is slightly different. We might pay a little bit more for certain tests and certain things we do to add a little bit more assurance uh, and our customers may want us to go just a little bit beyond the absolute minimum. The public benefits from that. 
we are the customers. We are the producers. We're all the customers. We're all in this together. And there's much more accountability in our model here in the District of Columbia. Right now, I know of no effort to, to privatize the Washington Aqueduct. No, no, I read in the no. paper that the Trump administration was that, kind of looking that, at that. So that, that, that is correct. The, uh, the administration on two occasions in the last two years had sent a legislative proposal to the Congress to consider the privatization. Our customers and the Congress have, have looked at this and they have not moved. They may, and in which case, of course, we'll cooperate. We're a federal entity and we, we're part of the administration and we, we do that. My comment here, though, is that we are providing the service to the standard our customers D.C. Water, Arlington County, Fairfax Water, want. They are our board members, and they have set a very high standard for us. And I know that none of, the one, none of those are currently looking to give up their control and the way they operate to a private entity. Uh, should they decide to do that, that'll work itself out, and we'll work through that. So, of course, we support the administration because we're part of the administration, but we also are providing water in this business relationship with our customers and doing that as well as we can, improving it every day, and then we will work to see how this comes out in time. So I, I'm, I'm, water is scarce. It's a valuable resource. We're doing our very best in an, in an engineering and mechanical sort of way and in a financial way to get safe, reliable, and cost-effective water to our wholesale customers so they can pass that along to their retail customers. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network, and our guest today is Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit, Tom. Let's talk about your background, and I can really hear the passion you have about delivering quality water to, to our community, and first, let me just say thank you for that. Um, but how did you get started in this role as General Manager? How, how did you come to the Washington Aqueduct? Well, I needed a job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I... I um, I spent a career in the regular army. I was in the Corps of Engineers. I had gone to West Point and traveled around the world doing what was asked of me in the army. And my last assignment was here in Washington, D.C. And I understood that Washington Aqueduct was looking for a manager and I applied for the job. That was in 1994. It's a long time ago. But it's been a delightful day after day after day, all these days, coming to work, uh, looking to do things better. But it's all about the people working with a great team of engineers and mechanics and scientists and, and, and administrative people who are all part of this team and share and, and exceed the passion. They work hard. They work in the middle of the night. They're out in the cold and the rain and the snow, uh, making sure the mission doesn't fail. That's what makes me excited about the whole thing. And so I'm just responsible to help make it go and at the same time sort of look over the next hill and see where we are going and then with our customers, plan what it is we're going to do to be better in the future than we are now. So that, that's what got me here and what keeps me here. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Tom Jacobus, General Manager of the Washington Aqueduct. Tom, I just want to thank you for your military service. I want to thank you for your service in helping uh, our area have clean water and joining us and sharing your uh, journey and a little bit about your organization and the facts about the Potomac River and the water that is available to us. I'm Aileen Black. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Your favorite band's about to play a sold-out show. You got in... 
Over here. With a friend. And found a spot close enough to see the set list. They're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it.